My name is Joseph, and I work here, and uh, I've been away for a little while, and uh, it's been refreshing for me. Maybe it's been refreshing for you to not have to listen to me for a few weeks, but we had a wonderful trip, mission trip to Peru, and uh, it was a blessing to get to witness that work firsthand. Uh, And Oren said earlier that I will be presenting that report, but I will not be doing that alone. John will be presenting, Dr. Scott Holder will be presenting, Terry Rogers, these were the men who joined us on our trip, as well as uh, several ladies were down there with us as well, and we uh, just, though we had a few bumps in the road, a little bit of sickness here and there, it was a blessing for us to serve uh, alongside the Christians who are there, and to just get to see the great things that God is doing through that church, in that community, and we'll be excited to share some of those uh, experiences with you on Sunday night, April the 7th. And then I was blessed to spend some time, some special time with my family last week uh, on a little getaway. Uh, And now we're glad to be back. It's good to be home. If you've kept up with the Bible reading, you are deep into Deuteronomy now, You're, you're heading into the back half of Luke uh, I want to confess to you that I'm, I am behind in my Bible reading. I want to just be vulnerable with you. I thought I would have a chance in Peru to maybe even get ahead, but man, those guys worked us to the bone down there, and we hardly had any extra time uh, for reading. And so I'm, I'm a bit behind, but I confess this to you because it is my goal to stand up here next Sunday and say I am caught up. Okay, so this is for my own accountability. My goal this next week is to completely catch up so that I'll be on track. Maybe you're behind as well. You need a little extra encouragement. The preacher is also behind in his reading. So there you go. You're not the only one. Uh, But my goal is to catch back up. I want to rewind. I'm not going to talk about a text that if if you're staying on track that you read in the week prior, I want to go back even further into the book of Numbers. And I want us to talk this morning about a seminal moment in Israel, an event that altered the course of Israelite history, and it occurs in Numbers 13 and 14. We'll get into that chapter as well, but I want you to grab a Bible and go there with me. It will be advantageous to you to have a copy of God's Word open in your lap to refer to several verses as we go forward in the sermon this morning. Numbers 13 and 14, we find Israel having been rescued from Egypt. That's in the past. They've been brought up out of Egyptian bondage. God, of course, using Moses to lead his people out from under the thumb of Egypt and out into the wilderness. They have gathered at Mount Sinai to receive the law of the Lord They have entered into a covenant with the Lord. They said, all that you have told us to do, we will do there now in a covenant relationship with God. And they are on the cusp of entering into the land of promise. The land that was pledged to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, generations before. They are literally at the southern border, poised to enter into the land. They're in the wilderness of Paran, near the city of Kadesh. So they are right there, ready to go in. 
And we read in the first part of Numbers chapter 13, a portion of which was read for us earlier, that some spies are sent into the land to scout it out. God tells Moses, send some men up into the land of Canaan, one for each tribe, so 12 total. Uh, He also says, I am giving this land to the people. Don't forget that, a very important detail. It was It was to be God's gift to them. And I want you to send 12 spies into the land. And so the spies are sent and numbered among them are uh, Caleb, who is of the tribe of Judah, and Joshua, who is of the tribe of Ephraim, who was one of Joseph's sons. Now, if you have already read this, and many of you have, uh, then you know how this story goes. And so there's no need for me to tease it out. Let me give you a preview. What we are about to see in the coming verses, in the coming chapters, is a total collapse of faith in Israel. A total collapse of faith. And let me pause right here because I think we need to define our terms. What do we mean when we use the word faith? What do we mean by faith or faithfulness? How would you define those words? Well, there's several different definitions that we could use, several different ways to tackle this question. By faith, we could just be talking about the truth of God's Word, and we could be talking about having correct or sound doctrine, believing what we ought to believe about God and about His law, and that is, of course, important. But I know a lot of people who have They're doctrinal ducks in a row who have crossed every T and dotted every I and they have correct doctrine, but they're just, well, they're jerks. Do you know people like this? They they know the book, but they haven't embraced the character that the book instructs us to embrace. And so this can't be the full picture. It is, of course, part of the picture. It is, of course, important for us to have correct and sound doctrine, for us to believe rightly, but that can't be all there is to it. And in fact, it's not. So truth and the pursuit of truth and seeking it and practicing, that is not the complete picture when we're talking about faith. Well, what about turnout? What about regularity in coming to the services of the church? A lot of us through the years have defined faithfulness in these terms, and you hear that in our language. We say he or she, sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so was always faithful to attend. And certainly, being a part of a local church means being committed to gathering with the Christians in that local church, does it not? And we do not forsake the assembly. Uh, We are committed to coming together. That's important. That's instructed in God's Word. And God knows what's best for us. But that is not the extent of Faith, as we think about faithfulness, it's, again, part of the picture, but not the whole picture. Because you know as well as I, there have been many Christians through the ages who were in church, at the building, every time the doors were open, but they were rascals out in, you know, the rest of the week, living their regular lives. And so, truth is part of it, and turnout is part of it, attendance, regularity, and services. But I think, At the deepest level, 
faith means trust. Faith means trust. Reliance. Total dependence upon God. And by the way, when you trust God, you are then motivated to seek His truth, to believe rightly, even when it might not make sense. When you trust God, you are motivated to regularly gather with believers. Turnout becomes important to you. And you don't forsake the assembly. But it starts with trust. Trust is at the core of what it means to have faith. And so what is about to happen in Israel, I said, was a collapse of faith. It's a collapse of trust. A collapse of trust in God and in what God had promised His people. The spies are sent into the land of promise with specific instructions. Moses says, here's what I want you to look for when you're up in in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Are the people there strong or are they weak? Are there a lot of them or are there just a few? Is the land good? Is it fertile? Is it fruitful or is it bad? Are the people in camps, you know, are they in shanty towns or tents? Or are their cities well fortified? Do they live in strongholds? Is the land rich? Is it wealthy? Or is it impoverished? Is it poor? Are there trees? Is there a lot of vegetation? Or is there scant vegetation in the land? And they go up and after 40 days of scouting it out and traveling all the way north and then back south again, they come back and here's their report. I'm going to sum it up for you. This is verses 25 through 29. Here's the gist of what they say. Numbers 13, 25 through 29. The land is very good. Oh boy, is the land good. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a land that's very fruitful. In fact, it was the time of grapes and they cut off a big cluster of grapes and they carried it around with them to illustrate the fruitfulness of the land. The land is good. But the people are very strong. The people are very strong. And so they come back with a positive report about the land. But a negative report regarding the strength of the people who live there. Now I always thought that it was their negative report that was the problem. That that's why God gets upset with them is because they brought back a negative report but they were asked to report truthfully about what they saw in the land and initially that's what they do they get a little bit exaggerated as they go but they come back and they on the whole give a straight account of what they had seen up in the land of Canaan the problem is what comes next after the report You've got Caleb and Joshua, as you well know, who keep the faith. And they say in verse 30, well, Caleb says here, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb knows what's up. Caleb knows that God has promised the land to his people. God has said, I'm going to give it to you. God has been saying that all from all the way back when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob walked the earth. It was a long-held promise. And so Caleb keeps the faith and he's courageous. And he says, we can do it. We are well able to overcome it. But the other ten spies are 
consumed with doubt and fear. And we read about that in verses 31 and 32. They say, we are not able. No, Caleb, did you not see what we saw? Did you not see the fortified cities? Did you not see the strength of the people? Did you not see how mighty their armies are? We are not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than us. And the rest of the people were swayed by their negative report. In verse 1 we see of chapter 14. Skip ahead. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. So a small number... The ten spies not only bring back a negative report, but as a result of that negative report, say there's no way we can take that land. And as a result, all the people are swayed. They are influenced to believe what they believe. And isn't that how it goes? A small number of negative, fearful Doubtful voices can spread like wildfire. Because the nation of Israel numbered over a million people at this time. And ten negative voices was able to sway the mindset and the attitude of an entire nation. And they said, you know what, I think those guys are right. God is wrong and they're right. We can't do it. And so they they weep and they cry And they doubt God. The problem. See the problem is not that they overestimated their enemies. Because by all accounts their enemies were strong. And their cities were well fortified. And their armies were mighty. The problem is not that they overestimated their enemies. The problem is that they underestimated their God. It's it's that they thought their enemies were stronger than God. They doubted that God would do what he said he would do, what he'd been saying he would do. Numbers chapter 13, verse 2, once again, I'm giving the land to the people. Did you not hear God say that? I am giving you this land. You just have to trust in me. You just have to go in there and fight, and I will fight with you, and I will fight for you. It is yours for the taking. It is my gift to you. And he promised it to Abraham and all the rest. And the people don't believe God. There's a better word than believe. The people don't trust God. They had trust issues. Do you have trust issues? I have trust issues. And this was illustrated for me recently on the three flights down and the three flights back from Peru that I have trust issues. Flying makes me a nervous wreck. And I think it's because, well, first of all, in my mind, it doesn't make sense for a metal tube to be able to fly through the air 30,000 feet above the surface of the earth at hundreds of miles an hour. That doesn't make sense. We shouldn't be able to do that. And of course, I've heard a, a preacher say before, the reason that he doesn't fly is because the Lord Jesus promised that, lo, I will be with you always. You heard that. Corny preacher joke, I know. Flying makes me a nervous wreck. 
in addition to these reasons, I think it's because a lot of trust is involved when you get on an airplane. You got to trust the pilot. You are placing your life into the hands of somebody that you don't know who is sitting in the cockpit. You got to trust that pilot. You got to trust his experience and his training and his skills. You got to trust the guys on the tarmac with the big orange glow sticks, you know, who are out here doing this and that. And do they even know what motions that they're making? Are they just involved in some sort of a dance? You got to trust the people in, uh, what are they called up in the tower? Help me out. Air traffic control, those people. You got to trust the people who designed the airplane, who built it, the people who inspect it. You're placing your life into the hands of all these people that you don't know. And what I discovered about myself, I don't think I discovered it, I think I was just reminded that I struggle to trust in anything or anyone other than myself. I want to be in complete control of every situation. I want to be the one in the driver's seat. I want to be the one in the cockpit. I don't want to trust, I don't want to place my life in somebody else's hands. I don't trust other people easily. And it just makes me wonder what that says about my willingness to fully trust in God. I think we have trust issues. When I say we, I mean our culture. When I say we, I mean the church. I think we struggle. Uh, There's evidence everywhere that we think trusting in God to fulfill His purposes is not enough. That we've got to do something extra in order to help God fulfill His promises. And so our savings accounts and our rainy day funds are filled to the max with way more money than we would ever need. There's a predominant sentiment that the world, that the church is doomed, that we're in a downward spiral, that nothing can can, uh, reverse the tailspin that we're in, to use an airplane metaphor. We give too much allegiance to earthly nations and political leaders. We work ourselves up into such a lather about politics and about earthly countries. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be unconcerned, that we should should be unconcerned about who we vote for. But there's a point at which we become so obsessed with the state of our country and with the state of our political uh, situation that it betrays a lack of trust in God. And it communicates to the world that we are not people of faith, that we are not people of trust because we're so worried and we're so anxious all the time about what's happening in our country. I think the biggest problem with the church today is not that truth is being compromised. And that is a big problem. That's a big problem. Where we see people compromising on the truth of God's word. I acknowledge that's a big problem. I don't think it's the biggest problem. And I don't think the biggest problem is turnout. Though that is also a big problem. The people are not coming to church as often as they once did, as often as they should, as often as the Lord wants them to. A big problem, but not the biggest. The biggest problem is a lack of trust. A deficit of bold faith. Because as we established earlier, it is out of this sense of trust that we pursue truth. It is out of this sense of trust that we come to church and we gather with the saints. We lack a trust in God, and we live in a country that does not encourage or reward trust in God. We live in a culture that preaches trust in yourself. Pick yourself up by your own 
bootstraps believe in yourself. You have the strength within yourself to do everything you've ever dreamed of doing. Everywhere we turn, our culture is telling us, trust in yourself. And we have bought the lie. Hook, line, and sinker. And so we are to be a countercultural body. The church, believers, where we say, no, I don't trust in myself, and I don't trust in my desires, and I don't trust in my heart, and I don't trust in my own strength and ability. I place my trust in God. I want to solely rely upon Him. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they beg the people. They plead with the people, do not lose faith. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 10, in verse 8, Joshua says, if the Lord delights in us, He'll bring us into this land. He'll give it to us. Joshua gets it. Joshua's been listening. Joshua repeats here what the Lord has said. Verse 9, don't rebel against the Lord. Do not do this. Don't fear the people of the land. A little later in verse 9, the Lord is with us. Don't fear them. They plead with the people, but it's no use because their doubt has produced within them fear. And what we need to recognize here, what we need to see in this text is that their lack of trust in the eyes of God is rebellion. In God's estimation, they have rebelled against Him because they lack trust. And that rebellion deserves punishment from God. What happened? What happened to Israel when trust in God collapsed? What were the consequences? You know, an entire generation missed out on the promised land. God says, you're afraid of going into the land. You're afraid that your children will be prey. Well, guess what? It is your children who will inherit this land and not you. I will wait until this entire generation has passed away in the wilderness before I lead my people into into the land that I have promised. This entire generation, except for Caleb and Joshua and their families who kept the faith, they will pass away. And you will spend 40 years, a year for every day that the spies spent in the land of Canaan. You'll spend it in the wilderness. Fear was the final straw for God. It was fear that kept them out of the promised land. These people, this generation. And it makes me wonder what we might be missing out on because of our lack of trust in God. They missed out. They missed out on this gift from the Lord. What are we missing out on when we decide not to place our complete faith and dependence and trust in the Lord? Doubt produces fear, but faith and trust produces courage. That's what Joshua is saying. Don't fear those people. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. Don't be afraid. That's the most oft-repeated command in the Old Testament. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yes, the obstacles are great. The obstacles for them were great. And that's not why they were punished, because they came back with an honest report. Yes, the people were strong. Yes, the armies were mighty. And yes, the cities were well fortified. The obstacles were great for them, but their God was greater. And that's what they forgot. And the obstacles for us are great. The obstacles for declaring the gospel in this increasingly secular world. 
the obstacles that Satan has placed in our paths, the, the ones who trumpet evil and wickedness and immorality at every turn. Yes, in our culture, the obstacles are great, but our God is greater. God's enemies are strong, but our God is stronger. So do not fear and be of good courage, as Numbers 13, verse 20 says. Do you trust God? When God says, all things work together for good for those who love me, trust Him. Trust that. When God says, my son will be with you always to the end of this age, trust Him. When God says, Unlike the kingdoms of this earth which can be shaken and which will fall, my kingdom cannot be shaken. My kingdom is unshakable. When God says that, trust Him. When God says the gates of hell, not even the gates of hell, shall prevail against my church, trust Him. When God says my son will return, there will be a resurrection, there will be a judgment, and I will defeat all evil, all enemies will be vanquished, I will make them my son's footstool when God says that, and he has said that. Trust him. I think about what the Hebrews writer says as we close. The Hebrews writer says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We could rightly insert or replace the word faith there with trust. Without trust, it's impossible to please God. And trust is more than just believing that God is real, that He is who He says He is. Even the demons believe and shudder, as James said. And when you've read the Gospel of Mark, you see the demons are the first to recognize Jesus as the Son of the Most High. Even the forces of Satan believe in God, so belief is not enough. And coming to church is not enough. It is trust that is at the core of faith. Do you trust God? Have you entrusted your life to God? Do you trust Him with your past, your present, and your future? Have you placed your complete faith in God? Maybe there's something that your faith is compelling you to do, but fear has stopped you from doing it. You know that you need to be baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You know that you need to come and Confess His name before men so that those iniquities can be washed away so that you can rise up out of those waters a new, a new person. But every week when you hear the invitation, the voice of fear gets in your head. And you stay right where you are. And you're kept from sliding down your pew and coming down the aisle to do what you know you need to do. I want to encourage you in the same way that Joshua and Caleb encouraged the people in Numbers 13 and 14, do not fear. Trust in God. If you need to come and confess sin, if you know that your life has gone off track and you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, choose trust this morning over doubt and fear. We sing this song for you right now. Why don't you come while we stand and sing it?